0: This week on the It's a Monkey podcast.
1: How do we take these tools and master using them to compartmentalize the best of our stories and remember that we still want to be living our lives and appreciating one another in real life the same way that our grandparents did, while also providing those digital thumbprints for those that want to be following along? It's a question you ask yourself every day as a creator, is how much creation is too much creation?
0: Good morning. Good evening. Hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the co-host of the It's a Monkey podcast, and thank you for joining us. It is Saturday, the twenty-first of July, when we are recording this. It is Friday, the twentieth of July, where my co-host is on the west coast of Canada. I'm sitting in Sydney, Australia, and um, beautiful, beautiful sunny winter's day. Kate, when I grew up in South Africa, in Johannesburg, we had winters like this where um, there wasn't a drop of wind, deep, deep blue skies, and you could sit inside and get these sunbeams and get all nice and warm. So we're very lucky in Sydney as well that we've got incredibly pleasant winters.
2: You're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I've got very snowy winters here. But well, not you, not as bad as the middle of Canada that gets like minus forty.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, we won't even. It's I, it was about seven degrees Celsius here the other day, eight degrees, and wow, it felt cold. And then you really think of other places of the world, but Sydney. You know, we don't have insulated apartments, so you walk from outside to inside with seven degrees and uh, you maybe go from seven degrees to nine degrees and then you've got to start heating your apartment. So a lot of the Europeans that come here and a lot of the Russians complain that they feel colder in Sydney than in their part of the world because at least there was insulation and central heating in their part of the world, whereas in Sydney we can go into denial. I always say Sydney people are, are the leading experts at denial that we actually even have a winter. You see people walking around in T-shirts and flip-flops and just, just holding in there just for two months until it turns <laughs> around again. You can sort of get away with it. You're not going to die.
2: Yeah, although I feel like it's not really Sydney-born and bred people that walk around in the winter like that because for them that's still cold. It's That's the true. tourists that are used European. to, yeah, the Europeans and the Canadians and stuff that are used to freezing cold winters, they think that our winter's really mild and then they walk around in a t-shirt.
0: Yeah, I'm looking out now, it's such a beautiful sunny blue day, although the temperature is about, I think it's about 11 degrees and I, I bet your bottom dollar, if it stays windless down at Bondi Beach, there are going to be some Europeans sunbaking on the beach <laughs> So it's all it's all relative in life. Anyway, we're going to kick off on episode 122 of the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com and you can tweet us at monkeypodcast. I actually noticed that Kate and team have been putting up these great little clips on the Twitter account. So if you follow us on Twitter, you'll get these great little teaser clips where you'll actually see clips of Kate and myself talking. So go and check it out. I um, was happy to to see that there's some visuals coming in with our podcast we we do this podcast over and above everything else our tiny team does at manage flitter and manage social so uh we appreciate any support that you send to us and sharing it with friends and giving us retweets etc later on in the show we have a terrific interview with chris strub now chris is a published author a youtuber a course instructor a keynote speaker an award-winning social good road tripper. And Chris Chris is just an interesting guy. He's had an interesting background. He lives an interesting life. And he's a lovely guy. And we spoke about all sorts of bits and pieces about the social media industry, about what it's like to, to travel around the US, Chris's personal journey. Uh, I personally like hearing people's personal uh, life stories. Everyone's got such a different life story. Human beings are infinitely uh, fascinating. So we have that coming up later on in the show, Chris Strub. Um, so stick around for that. But as always, we kick off with this week's news. Quite a big story this week. Um, one of these stories, Kate, that's a big but boring story. Google find a record five billion uh, U.S. dollars, I think, not euros. U.S. dollars by the EU for Android antitrust violations. Now, antitrust basically means um, anti-competitive behavior, monopolistic behavior. That is a that is a big fine, even for Google, five billion dollars. Run us through briefly what what was this all about? Because it did make the news, but as I said, I think I think it's a little bit boring for people, right? It's it's so people don't haven't really sort of focused on this, but it is quite a significant uh, find for Google.
2: Yeah, definitely. I had to do a bit of digging to actually get to the guts of it and figure out the interesting parts. But basically, so Android, uh, Google sorry, um, own Android, and when they let other manufacturers, so people who manufacture phones, use Android, Um, They can use Android for free, but if they want to include the Google Play Store, which is the equivalent of like the App Store on an iPhone, so you get all your apps there, they bundle in Google Search uh, and Google Chrome. So you can't have the Play Store without Google Search. And basically, the fact that they're forcing the manufacturers to have Search there, that's the uncompetitive advantage against other browsers.
0: So if you use Samsung, and you want to give people access to the Play Store on your Samsung phone, Google says no problem. You can uh, you can have access to the Play Store, but you have to have Chrome pre-installed. Is that right?
2: Yes, you have to have Chrome and Google Search. So Chrome is the browser, and Search is the well, the search engine.
0: Can you uninstall it on, say, a Samsung? Does it let you uninstall Chrome?
2: Not sure, but you can't act. So if you you can't access the Play Store by itself legally, so it has to come with the phone originally.
0: Right, okay. So
2: you've kind of trapped them, and the so the European Commission, they've deemed the Play Store to be too imported to Android devices, because um, they account for about 90% of the apps downloaded.
0: Right, and and have they, um, besides the fine, have they advised what Google need to do?
2: Um, so they have 90 days, either pay the fine, um, but also, like, in addition to that, they have to stop forcing manufacturers to pre-install Chrome and search with the Play Store. Right. So they have to separate the Play Store from that bundle. Right. Um, but Google are appealing that result. So regardless, like, this will mean some changes to how Android operates in the future.
0: The interesting thing, Kate, is Microsoft went through something similar many years ago with having Internet Explorer pre-installed with Windows. Right, um, and they got into trouble, I believe, as well, with with, uh, and I think they had to separate that. I think Microsoft initially, if I'm going into the archives, and initially the Internet Explorer was separate to Windows, and then they just integrated it so tightly so that you couldn't um, separate the two. And then they got into trouble, and then they separated the two again. Mm.
2: They've made quite a few references to the Microsoft one, but there's a lot of the articles are sort of saying that it's a different. It's a different type of thing. Um, right. But you know, Google, a lot of people are also saying like, how is this different to Apple, for example, forcing you to use Safari. they're saying that the difference is that Apple have like a uh, vertically integrated operating system. So they have their own devices and their own OS. Whereas Google, you could have a Samsung phone with Android. So that's the, that's the difference.
0: Yeah and I guess Apple's also not pretending to I mean that's one manufacturer but but yeah it, it does make you think about the Microsoft case I guess the Apple case. So all quite interesting. I mean where it's relevant it's it's to think from the user's perspective though. I mean as a user I don't know if you can uninstall things and you can install other things. I don't know if it's that big a deal. Um, if an Apple user can install Chrome and if a Samsung user can install Bing and use Bing, does it really matter the pre-installs? I mean, yes, obviously it does because it's what people tend to use as defaults. But is it is it really crippling innovation in the market? I don't know. I think other things are having a far more negative impact. Um, what, what do you think from a user's perspective?
2: Yeah, I can see how the default would definitely, you know, make Google search in this instance more popular but it's also a little bit too late like Google search is just so well used and known that I don't really see it as a problem you know in the way I look at things like no other no other search engine kind of compares to Google at this stage of the game maybe maybe like 5 plus years ago but now it's sort of like Google's dominating anyway
0: yeah by far I mean, I don't know anyone that ever uses. I see adverts on my Twitter stream sometimes for DuckDuckGo. Have you heard of that? Yeah.
2: I have heard have of heard it. I've yeah. heard of it. Haven't really used it though.
0: I think they're trying the line now, so about that, you know, they they're much more mindful about what they do with um, your data, saying we we're not a data play. Like Google's essentially a data advertising play, and DuckDuckGo mm. say we're not, you know, we're not, we're not interested in doing that. But yeah, look, Google's also just so far ahead in terms of quality and that it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm just looking, I'm just looking on Google's uh, balance sheet. Um, how much cash they have? They have, wow, I'm trying to, there's so many zeros here, Kate. I think they've got $101 billion on their balance sheet. So $5 billion is definitely not going to bring them down. They will then have $95 billion on their balance sheet. Yeah. But um, it's, still, it's still a lot of money. And obviously, there's a lot of politics uh, and, and symbolism behind this case. Um, I have to say, I'm still using my Google Pixel XL2. My little nephew, who's 17 years old, he's used every single iPhone. And I he, just, he bought a Google Pixel X2 a few months ago. And he said to me last week, it is the best phone I've ever used. So I love my Google Pixel X. XL2, which is the big one, the new one. The only thing I don't like is it doesn't have a headphone, Jack. And Google stupidly, I'm holding up for you now the the converter that and this isn't the one that came with the phone. The one that came with the phone is like a cheapy, okay? Kate. So they throw in a cheapy converter, which is the dumbest thing, because guess what? After three weeks, it suddenly just starts working intermittently and you start getting angry with the phone. And I ordered off Amazon a high-quality USB-C to headphone jack converter and it's fantastic and it lasts and it's robust. So if you are a Google Pixel XL2 user, do yourself a favor, go, go hop onto Amazon and buy yourself a high-quality USB-C to headphone converter and it will make your life a lot easier instead of every two weeks you're, that converter just dying. So. Yeah, they could have at least included a high-quality converter in the box. I, it's almost like sometimes you wonder whether people use their own products. You, you know, it would have been such an obvious thing to do. But anyway, that's that's the antitrust case.
2: Are you sure it wasn't just the one that you know you might have got a a faulty one, for example? Do you get a free if you took it back? Do you get another free one?
0: Um, they Into did reset. I called them. I called them to complain. I called Google themselves. They sent me out another one and. The same thing happened. I think what it is is I use my headphones probably 50% of my day, right? Between walking to work, work, walking from work, um, walking during the day, I use it a lot. And after two to three weeks, if it's not a high quality uh, converter, it just it just starts br- like it's you know the, it just starts breaking. I just think the quality is not there. And this higher quality one has lasted a lot longer with no issues. So. Okay. it's a good um,
2: workaround at least
0: yeah and google probably they probably got a a quote on a deal for you know uh, how many millions of phones they sold and if you save one buck on a million or two million or five million phones it lands up being a lot of money
2: yeah i also find it a bit odd that they even included a converter to be honest like if they're going towards the bluetooth headset if that's the way they're going then they should give you a bluetooth headset like why would you give you someone a converter?
0: That probably would have been a smart idea to give a Bluetooth headset than a headset with a converter. The converters are actually quite difficult to find. That's the problem. A lot of the stores in Sydney don't actually stock them, so you have to order them online. But they would have definitely been better off without supplying an average quality converter because that just pisses people off. And initially you think it's the phone, and it's not. It's just the converter.
2: Mm.
0: Anyway, that's the only complaint I got of the Google Pixel you get unlimited storage space on photos. The camera is great quality. It integrates with all your Google apps really nicely. It's, um, it's fantastic. So if you are in the market for a new phone and annoyingly, they've dropped the price on them recently after I bought it. So they dropped the price like $400, I think from $1,400 to about $1,000 uh, Australian in Sydney. And I got a free Google Home device with it, which I gave to a friend because I'm not really interested in it. But they threw that in for free. So anyway, do you use any of those Google Homes or Echoes or anything like that?
2: No, I've never tried them yet. I would be interested to know though, especially if I had my own place and everything was all synced up with my computer and my phone and everything. Yeah. But if it was only half set up or like, yeah, not done properly, then I think it would just be something that's out there and you never used. It'd It'd have to be integrated enough that it provided value.
0: I think you're spot on. I, th- I think if it's integrated, the power is incredible. I think if you can come on when you can say, you know, okay, Google, tell me what to make tonight with the ingredients in my, fr- in my fridge, that's only going to take me 10 minutes. And it will just say, well, you haven't actually, you've forgotten about this ingredient, that ingredients. And if you put that in, um, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I buy awesome food that I sometimes forget about. And like, I'd actually, and and it's i get frustrated that i forget about it but anyway maybe maybe that's just me um shouldn't reveal these these quirks to the audience i guess um amazon cake amazon's been in the news this week for a few reasons and jeff bezos because amazon share price just keeps going bananas and jeff bezos is now the richest man in the world by far i mean, someone said if you If you add up the next two people, like Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg, they still, their net wealth is still (laughs) Jeff Bezos, so Amazon's share price is going crazy. But there's also another story which sort of broke was around, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos is investing through some other companies in space travel. So tell us about Jeff Bezos, it's called um,
2: Blue Origin.
0: Blue Origin, that's tell us about Blue Origin and some of his statements and where all of that's at and that's uh, come out recently.
2: Yeah, so Blue Origin is a company that Jeff Bezos owns and they have a spacecraft called the New Shepard. Um, basically, they're going to use that to do space tourism. They want to put six people in the spaceship, not spaceship, but like a vehicle, they're calling it a space vehicle, and then it'll take them 100 kilometers above Earth into suborbital space, which is high enough to experience a few minutes of weightlessness and to see the curvature of the planet, and then they come back down. So it's sort of a experience for the rich. And what they've so done this so. week... Yeah, so this week they've uh, announced that tickets are going to start at $200,000 up to about $300,000 to start with. So they haven't actually put a human in there yet. They've done eight test flights, two with dummies in them. And they're also just about to test like their safety procedure. So if something fails, they're going to be testing the fail-safe way to get the passengers back safely. And so that's starting now, but they're hoping to sell tickets and actually have these trips running next year.
0: Um, wow, that's soon. Yeah. I think what's interesting is... Competitive nature in humans is so interesting. So I think there's, I think there's all these billionaires. There's Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson, all racing to try be the first to take tourists into space. And I think this competition is a large reason of pushing pushing it forward. I think the one that does it first would definitely, um, you know, when you've got so much money, I guess like you, you start measuring life in other ways. <laughs> like you know, it's like it becomes it's another, different. Yeah. It's it's the law. The the law. The normal laws of 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 social um, recognition sort of change. Two hundred thousand dollars though. I mean that is that is a lot of money just to go high up above the earth. I mean if it was going all the way to the moon, you can sort of think that that's okay. That sort of makes sense. But wow, that is essentially just a very high plane trip. Um, that's a lot of money.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but you get to go to out of well, suborbital space and they've got like these windows that are about three times the size of a regular passenger window on a like a Boeing plane. Um, mm-hmm. So you will get to see a lot, which would be cool, but only six people at a time. And, yeah, you mentioned Richard Branson. So they've got a similar thing uh, and they've like pre-sold about 650 tickets so far. Uh, and they're charging two hundred and fifty thousand a
0: ticket. Mm, typical Amazon style—they undercut a little bit, right? That's yeah. their strategy. Which is generally, by the way, if you're a business owner going to start a business, that's generally not the right way to approach things, right? <laughs> because it's a, it's it's it sort of sends a signal of of people not valuing it as much. But Amazon are a bit of a law unto themselves. But yes, you generally. Don't don't start playing that game. But yeah, it's interesting that that he's brought it just under that. Um, look, there's a lot of wealthy people out there in the world, and um, I guess when you've got everything, this this sort of is something interesting. I don't, I wouldn't do it from a safety perspective yet. Hmm. Um, there are going to be issues, unfortunately. It's just the way you look at air, airline travel. It took many many years until they ironed out everything and came up with the systems and all the different use cases. Yeah, I mean, wow, it's, um, with the stuff, if things go wrong, they go really wrong, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, it's true. And the type of people, too, that would be in these space vehicles that can afford that, to have, you know, the, the scandal of having their lives lost or, or something going wrong with their bodies, you know, by, you know, by leaving the planet is... Uh, I don't know, I feel like it would be like a big media scandal as well.
0: Well, let's you know, if you look at the space shuttle, I mean they had, you know, a massive government institution behind them with a lot of money and they had two tragedies, of course. So, you know, if if they and they and, and they've been doing it for a long time, so yeah, the risks the risks are definitely there, but I mean, I tell you what, I wouldn't want the responsibility, Kate. I wouldn't want to be a company that's providing this service now. I really, really wouldn't want that responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel
0: bad enough when we have a technical issue and a bug and someone can't log into our system. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I need is worrying about that people are flying into space, like, you know, that there's a not a bug in the return module software and, and something will... But, yeah, look, these guys, some of them are made of... I mean, Richard Branson, particularly, he's made of different stuff. You look at all his uh, personal adventures he's gone on, he's definitely quite comfortable with different types of risk.
2: Oh, for sure. Plus, too, like the actual company itself, so none of them have disclosed exactly how much the operational costs are, but it's estimated that each one of these flights is about $10 million. So even if the six people pay three hundred thousand dollars it's they're still losing millions each yeah. flight and yeah. they're all working on ways to reuse these vehicles so instead of traditionally parts of the spaceship fall away you know and they can't reuse them uh they're like a one one use kind of product uh, so they're looking at ways of reusing all these resources that they have but like it's easier said than done so it's just costing them so much money
0: I think what really and this is what might spin off from this industry I think what what really does make sense is faster travel on earth right
3: hmm. so
0: to get from Sydney to New York um, I mean there'd be huge demand for people paying I would even guess I mean I don't know a business class ticket to New York cost about 10,000 US dollars the standard price I reckon if they could charge 20 or 30,000 US for a for a 10-hour flight or a 7-hour flight to New York, now that would have huge demand. And and where and where Blue Origin and, and, and Branson's efforts may lead is to some type of system, and they're already talking about it, where that you could fly a lot cr- quicker cr- across the globe, for instance. Instead of sort of flying up and across, you go all the way up, right? And then you can move a lot quicker, and then you go back down
2: yeah i, I saw it was a ted talk i think uh elon musk his right hand woman was uh basically suggesting that suggesting that for the price of a business class ticket you could yeah go up higher go into space jet across the world and she was saying like in terms of like half an hour which is insane but that's what they're aiming towards
0: see that's that's um that would really shift the game you know just like it resulted in a lot more productivity if you would have safe efficient and preferably environmentally friendly travel that's incredibly quick that would really be interesting that would that would really shift the game interesting though kate i mean i was chatting with um, someone at uni this week and uh, it, it's i mean you're probably closer to this demographic than i am and uh, She's originally from Adelaide, which is the capital city of South Australia. And I just was chatting about whether she has plans to to come back to Sydney. And she said no, because she's really flies as little as possible. She's really hyper-focused and trying to, to minimize her environmental footprint. I mean, I'm wondering if young people, if this is really a thing, if that environmental awareness is really embedding itself to their core If she was a sort of a bit of an outlier uh, and, you know, with efforts like Blue Origin and flying across the earth a lot quicker, if the environmental component needs to be a really significant component.
2: Well, I think it would be. I suppose it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's a make or break for a lot of people, but even just going through my Facebook feed, there are a lot of or more people than you would think around my age or that I went to uni with and stuff are really concerned for the environment. And so everything they do, they're conscious of like, you know, they do these plastic free initiatives where they just take plastic completely out of their lives. Yeah, all sorts of things. So it doesn't surprise me that more people are getting on that and it would influence where people spend their money.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting for businesses to note that, and it's not just a fad. And it does have, have real impacts that we, we're still not quite sure of the impacts and um, still a lot of work to do. Anyway, that's Blue Origin. I'm not going to be flying that. Would you fly it if you had the money, Kate? If uh, we suddenly started selling uh, zillions more managed flitted subscriptions and I would, uh, you'd get some nice bonuses and you just had a bit of spare cash, would you do it?
2: Not, uh, not straight away, no. I would want to do it one day. But Virginia. yeah, yeah, one day okay. I'd, I'd give it a bit of time to iron out the kinks.
0: Hey, maybe in five years, like y- you'll be up there on some trip and we'll be doing a live podcast, right? Maybe. We'll a podcast from, not from Whistler, but from, you know. Space. In, yep, from space. <laughs> Kate from, you know, 10,000 kilometers above, <laughs> above the Grand Canyon at the moment. <laughs> hey, you never know, right? Could happen. I mean Jeff, Jeff Bezos talks a lot. I was listening to a talk of his. By the way, he's a fascinating guy to listen to. There's lots of his interesting talks on YouTube. He's a really, really smart and really interesting guy. And he was talking about how it's very important that we go and we colonize other planets.
2: Hmm.
0: Um we we may need to we may have we need we may unfortunately we may may need to run from our own home at some stage. But anyway, we won't get a, go down that rabbit hole. You're listening to it's a monkey podcast, episode one, two, two. We talk about tech, entrepreneurship, startups. We like we like to create this podcast as if you're listening to a, a quirky, interesting conversation, you're overhearing it. We we hope that that has uh, that effect. And um, you can email us at podcasteditormonkey.com if you have any speaker suggestions. We're also happy to play a 30-second ad if you send us through an MP3 for your product or or startup. And importantly, we'll give you a link on our show notes for free so if you own a business let us uh, let us know send us through um, a, an mp3 just telling us that you heard us on the podcast and what your business does we're going to take a short break and afterwards we're going to go to the interview that i did with chris Strub, who's a published author youtuber course instructor millennial keynote speaker and award-winning social good road tripper and just an all-round nice guy so stick around and we'll be back in a few seconds
3: Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account, by helping you find and follow people who have the word "cyclists" in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used ManageFlitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough.
0: You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. Now, we cover everything related to tech, social media, the political economy, startups, and so on. Now, we have another little initiative called the Social ROI Twitter Chat, which happens Sydney time, Monday morning, US time, Tuesday evenings. And a couple of months ago, we had a great guest on the Twitter chat, on the social ROI chat, Chris Strub. And Chris was just so full of personality and energy and such an interesting background and story that I pinged him and I said, I would love you on the podcast to dig a little deeper into the person and the life and the story. Of Chris Strubb. So I'm finally happy to say that we managed to eventually coordinate times. And uh, at the end of my Skype line is Chris Strubb. And Chris, his formal title or semi-formal title, I should say, Chris is a published author, YouTuber, course instructor, millennial keynote speaker, and award-winning social good road tripper. I love the last bit, Chris. It's, um, it's just obscure enough to make people think a little.
1: Yeah, you know, it's fun driving the United States. Uh, I know it's a lot different than Australia, where I hear that you really just kind of drive. If you're going to go around, you go around kind of the border of Australia, Uh right? You wouldn't ever really drive across the middle of Australia. I hear that's where all the kangaroos and everything hangs out, but... No, it's been a it's been a blast the last couple of years exploring America and more importantly working with all these different nonprofits, getting to know a lot of people like yourself and Madeline Sklar and obviously everybody on the social ROI chat. It's it life life's a bowl of peaches, man. It's 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 well, fun. Well, t-
0: tell you what, if you. If you ever come to Australia, let's go on a tour to the middle or, or, you know, to the more obscure parts of Australia, which you're right. Most people don't actually head away from the coasts. And generally, the best way to head into those areas, into the center, is through tours because they are very unforgiving places. And there have been many unfortunate incidents with tourists dying in there. So you don't want to head out there. It's pretty, pretty isolated. And, um, you've got to be super, super prepared. So maybe one day we can head in there and uh, t- together, Chris, have you ever been to Australia?
1: I've never been outside of North America, kev. Uh, as crazy right. as that sounds, I got my passport ready. I thought uh, you know, I uh, myself and a, a, a young lady friend a few years ago got our passports. We uh-huh. were going to go, and then, of course, that fell apart. Um, Uh So I may have some plans later this year. We're trying to finalize some things. Certainly if somebody's listening and you'd like to be privy to my first outside of North America experience, uh, if a brand is listening, for example, I'd love to do it. I'm very, very curious about what the rest of the world is like having had a chance to uh, really get to know the States as well as I have. So. We should
0: connect you with some of the Australian contacts because there's a lot of interesting conferences happening these days. For instance, next week, there's Jason Calacanis' launch conference in Sydney. He's brought his launch conference to Sydney. So um, there's a lot of big conferences in this part of the world, in Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera.
1: Yeah. No, I I am 1,000% in. You know, like I said, I I've, I bring a great perspective, I think, about, you know, all 50 states. You know, a lot of times I have these conversations uh, with folks in Australia and, you know, they couldn't really point out Kansas or Iowa or Michigan on a map. Uh, for me, I'm not even really exactly sure, if you showed me Australia, if I could tell you where Sydney is. So, you know, you, you think about how educated and how informed we feel, but yet there's still so much more of that great world. Have you been to the States? You've been here.
0: I've been to the States many times. I love the States. I love America. I've been to New York many times, San Francisco many times, LA many times. I've been to Reno on the way to the famous Burning Man oh, twice. Sure. sure. But there is so much more. Uh, I've been to um, Sacramento. There is so much more. I want to visit, um, you know, Sedona. I'd like, oh, I've been to Miami as well. I'd like to visit S- Seattle, Portland. And I would like to visit places like Detroit and... Um, Less sort of, you know, big well known cities, and to really see as many parts of America as possible. I'm very intrigued the concept and the idea just as much as the country of America.
1: Yeah, you know, and you referenced, um, you know, social good road tripper, you know, and for me, I've been trying to pivot to the idea of of road trip marketing uh, in general, right? Whether that's uh, with nonprofits or even for profits, the idea of, you know, we we talk about creating content, uh, episodic content, video content, video first, I think it'd be epic to maybe make a two-part video series where we travel from one corner of the states, you know, from, from Seattle to Miami, and then maybe we go from, from Sydney to whatever is the opposite of Sydney in Australia and compare the, the soft middle of our, our nations. Because again, there, there's, so much, there's so many stories out there to appreciate, and it's, it's always a joy to get out there and, and really understand what the country is really like.
0: And you know, the, I've spent quite a bit of time in the in the smaller towns in Australia, and you hit the nail on the head there, where there are a lot of stories, a lot of fascinating stories, a lot of fascinating lives. You know, even there's a town called Wagga Wagga, which is five hours west of Sydney that I head through many times. And there's some interesting refugees that have settled from, from Africa in Wagga Wagga. And the stories of life in Wagga Wagga, Australia is a million miles away, you know, both physically and culturally from where they come from and to to find out their stories would be absolutely fascinating. So just like you, I think we're both intrigued by people, their stories, their background, which brings me to the next point, Chris. T- tell us, you know, people that listen to the show are, a lot of them are entrepreneurs, a lot of them want to be entrepreneurs, sure. a lot of them want to be, you know, doing their own thing and they're interested in people's stories to how they got where they got to you? You get invited to conferences all over the world to talk about social, or yeah. what I should at least say at this stage to the, all over the states. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your background and story, because it's slightly unconventional, if I remember correctly.
1: Uh, yes, um, it's definitely unconventional. You know, I started out in the journalism field. I was talking about this earlier today. I thought in high school I would be uh, a columnist about, you know, American sports, you know, in the Sports Illustrated magazine. Uh, and over the last 15 years, there's been a very dramatic shift in the way that we communicate with one another. I tried to stay kind of ahead of the curve. You know, I worked at a newspaper for about 11 years in upstate New York, and it was, or I'm sorry, seven years uh, in upstate New York, and it was, difficult to see some of the older generations trying to adapt as quickly as the world was changing. And I said, you know, I really want to try and be on the forefront of how we're sharing stories moving forward. I still think the newspaper industry, the television industry, the radio industry, all of these industries still have so far to go to catch up to some of these YouTube superstars, uh, sensations and stuff. So for me, long story short, I had a job with a, a social media agency, just like I'm sure a lot of the listeners do. I was a social media director running social for a lot of different clients. And I had this vision that I I wanted to go travel, explore the world as we've been talking about for the last five, 10 minutes, get to know people's stories. And and by learning and and growing through others, I could develop my own story as well. And that's kind of how I ended up taking a road trip to 50 states, 50 American states in 100 days in the summer of 2015. I worked with a different youth-related nonprofit organization in every state. And I think that's, that's, the other big lesson, Kev, that I would mention here too, is we can, we can talk about dreaming about travel and, and uh, content creation and stuff all we want. But when you're coming up with these ideas, you really want to have a purpose behind it as well. Um, I traveled the country in 2014 without a, uh, a true genuine purpose. And what drove me to go again and what's driven me since 2015, Kev, is the idea that there are many, many organizations out there whose stories, as we talked about, deserve to be told. And now it's a matter of figuring out from a business sense how to make that happen. You know, you mentioned I've written a couple books. Um I've worked in partnership with different brands like the Salvation Army. So if you can find a way to facilitate that storytelling prowess and and get storytellers out there, I think it can be a very very valuable method for different organizations moving forward.
0: You know, it's so it's so interesting. I mean, I think we we forget as a society that that stories and rituals and initiation is, is such a massive part of uh, who we are and who we've always been as humans. Right? If you look at any ancient culture, it's about stories, it's about myths, it's about initiation, and somehow somehow the the wonderful capitalist society that's given us so much. That's been marginalized and, and, and on some subconscious level we still crave that, but, but somehow we've, we've lost the, the art and the skill and, and the appreciation or the respect for it, I should say, on a conscious level.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that storytelling is the most powerful thing that we have as humans. And it's the one thing that as we move forward into a world of augmented reality and virtual reality and machines taking over every job imaginable, this is the one thing that we uh, still share not just as storytellers, but across cultures as well, that you know, you and I can connect from literally different opposite sides of the the world and communicate and share stories uh, through a touch of a button or through the touch of a few buttons as we, we took a couple of minutes to get prepared here. But this is the one thing that has brought societies together for years and years and years and generations. And it's really special to think about how we can use these tools now, Kev, to capture these stories and pass them down Think about how much we we cherish the the memories, the the old black and white photos, the old beat up you know newspaper clippings that we might have from our great great grandparents, and then I try and think a generation or two or three later on, you know, how our grandkids, how our great grandkids, will see us.
0: Wouldn't it be great if uh, if our grandkids and our great grandkids can troll through our Twitter account or our Facebook account or our Snapchat oh, Chatter, gosh. Uh, stories? And I mean, wouldn't I, I would give. Anything to look at the equivalent of a Twitter account through my grandparents they went through so much in, in the wars, et cetera, and I, I'd give anything to to know what was going through their minds and what their fears were and their aspirations were and even their even their just random thoughts of the day were.
1: I think the this is part of the mystique and part of the the, the global question about the value of social media and man that sounds really terrible and 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 uh, boring, but the idea of how much to share and how much value there is in, in preserving these stories long-term, right? What, what, How are we surfacing what is really, truly valuable? Because, again, no, no grandkid of mine is going to go watch 100,000 live streams. We could live stream every minute of every day, but there's literally no time to put put all that together and actually consume it. So how do we take these tools and master using them to compartmentalize The best of our stories and remember that we still want to be living our lives and appreciating one another in real life the same way that our grandparents did while also providing those digital thumbprints for those that want to be following along. It's a question you ask yourself every day as a creator is how much creation is too much creation. I, I don't think most people are close enough to that, that happy medium. I, I think a lot of people still need to shift from nothing to something before we, we really tackle the idea of something to way too much.
0: I think, you know, uh, Chris, there's going to be some really trippy technologies available in the future where you'll have a AR slash VR system that can ingest some videos, with someone and ingest their Twitter feed and actually create an AR slash VR experience with someone that's perhaps even passed away, right? And you'd be able to even have a sit there and have a conversation. Now that's, that 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 might be, it seemed like a very peculiar idea at the moment. But in a way, it may actually be an, a, a positive thing. I'm not sure. I haven't thought through it properly, but I think the technology is going to be there.
1: It sounds so crazy to think about you know not the youngest generation where they might you know a 16 17 year old might might think to themselves and say oh yeah of course why not then then you start to worry to wonder about the the humanity uh and and whether or not that is something that we want to do as humans you know is there value in wanting to preserve people forever i i don't know you know again like you said th- these are all just thoughts that are kind of rolling through our head live as we go but you know when you die do you, does your desire to continue conversations with people end does that does that ruin the mystique of who somebody was when they were here? I don't know these are all fascinating questions that i'm I'm sure a lot of people are going to make billions and billions of dollars pretty soon you know trying to figure out
0: well yeah and this is a real sort of be in my bonnet that as a society we are not talking about what type of future we want with respect to. You know technology we 're going to have all this capability, but what where do we want to shape it where do we What do we want our our next phase to be? Do we want a world where you know we live forever, or we live for a thousand years or we we have augmented reality with people that have passed away and engaged with them, and maybe even three d print them into robots i don 't hear much of this discussion happening on a level where that can actually influence policy. You know, it happens in these little corners in the industry, like people like you and I, but on the political, national, public level, we're talking about all sorts of other things which sometimes Uh, – You know, may have a lot of uh, may have a lot of drama, but not a lot of substance behind it. And I would, I really wish that that as a world, and as as countries and societies, and even as an industry, yeah, I I wish Silicon Valley would form some sort of task group with with Elon Musk's and 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 the Jack Dorseys and and that get together and have a round table and have a discussion and publish a paper on their thoughts. So I think that would be really useful.
1: Uh, again you if, if you're listening to this on just audio uh, you you probably you can't see how my eyes are kind of my, my brain is kind of <laughs> not wandering but trying to trying to, to digest all of the things that you're you're talking about and, and all of the different you know economic aspects the sociopolitical aspects the, the the humanity of it you know do people you know we just had a death in, in my family last week you know do, do you, would that person want to live on forever and and then of course you talk about okay well if from a, a North Korean perspective right like if Kim Jong Un dies do we does that nation want to continue to be run by uh, a virtual Kim Jong Un you know and and if so for how long like will there be wars between the the virtual people and the real people you know once they develop that self awareness and that ability to think on their own like the, you know these are questions that again 15 20 years ago you know, when you're dialing up through uh, America Online, you know, through your telephone, um, I don't think we ever would have explored these ideas. But I tell you what, there's a lot of money to be made in this. You know, when you, when you bring up guys like Jack and Elon Musk and these folks, it, it really is a testament to the people who are on the forefront of, of these thought processes and, and how much benefit theoretically lays ahead for them.
0: So if you if you heard that Google experiment with the AR voice a few weeks ago, where the chatbot, the human voice chatbot, called up a hairdresser and organised an appointment, and it was just it was absolutely. Um, impossible to determine that that was a robot and not a human. You know, the technology is really there. And, and where I sit a lot of the time with friends and, and have these chats and the conversation always ends in exactly the same way. They all stop and they say to me, this is too creepy, too scary. I don't want to talk about this anymore. But we're going to be forced to talk about it if we don't talk about it now. In any case, so you well, know, this, take this, your
1: pick. This this is our first conversation we've ever had, Kev. Uh, I'm not intimidated to talk about anything, but it is it is it is a daunting subject to think about. Um, that there are all those different aspects to it, and hopefully, it, it's not. Ha- it, thankfully, it's not happening tomorrow. You know that. Uh, you know, as you talked about my background, my work, getting involved, in and in my company. I am here. It's all about building relationships with other humans, you know, and it's, it's really paradoxical in my head to wrap my mind around how we may be shifting away from that sometime in the future. You know, just like a generation before me, like I talked to my grandma the other day about self-driving cars for you and I, that's Uh probably not that big a deal for her. She's like, if I see one of those, I'm never driving again, you know? So, but for us, it's something that we'll surely have to adapt to in our lifetimes.
0: So Chris, tell me, tell me what's uh, a lot of people ask me this question as well a lot of the time. What's happening in social at the moment? There's obviously it's an industry that moves fast. You know, it's hard to believe that socials. Uh, I mean, Facebook was what 2006. Twitter was no Facebook 2004. Twitter 2006, I think, um, with the founding years. I may have that wrong.
1: That sounds sounds about right. Uh, I know Facebook was 04 because that was my uh, my freshman year of college. You know, I think that what we're seeing, Kevin, is this this particleization, this distribution of communities around the world that are interconnected with one another. You know, on all these different apps. I think we're also seeing, if you want to talk from the apps perspective, economy of scale in action. Right? That um, Snapchat, in my opinion, for example, is an, is just another example of a great app. That that even introduced some great technology to the world through the, its stories platform, but because of the economy of scale, because Facebook is just so much larger than this one particular app, basic high school economics tells you Snapchat will not exist in the long term, and we're seeing that with you know the in uh, American media, the merger of you know AT and T and Time Warner, and you know Disney trying to buy Fox, and all these different things that companies will. Get larger to become better, uh, more to become more efficient uh, at scale, and unless the government intervenes to stop that, we're just going to see every little last company getting eventually either bought up or driven out of business by Facebook. I hate to say that I think Twitter could be the next one, and it's it's all a numbers game. It all comes down to the money, and you can't look past that. If you're a user, if you're an advertiser, you have to go where the people are, and. Unfortunately, there's just I say unfortunately uh, from my perspective of, of wanting to see more competition in the market, but Facebook, by being first to the market, which is a theme that's, that's come up through the entire course of this half an hour here, by being one of the first actors and one of the leaders there in 2004, they got a head start on everybody else, and they've they've kept that lead all the way through to be able to drive out tons and tons of of their competition. So. I think those are the two big things that we're seeing, Kevin is is these these communities that are developing around these thought leaders, like social ROI, right? Like Madeline Sklar has her own little communities that pop up around social ROI and Twitter smarter. Every brand and every business should be thinking about its own little community and how it's leading the discussion there and not necessarily worrying about the bigger picture, which is that from a, from a, an economical perspective, I see Facebook you know, which of course owns Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, so on and so forth. Eventually, devouring almost all of its competition in the social media space.
0: I mean, I don't think the American government would let Facebook buy Twitter. You know, I think Facebook knows that. I might be wrong. And you know, in theory, there's a lot of anti-competitive laws, the antitrust laws in the U.S. But um, time time will tell. I mean, it's disappointing that there hasn't been a new kid on the block and i think there there's such economies of scale as you say and there's such strong networking effects already but i think people are almost you know it almost feels like it's the end of a phase of social we've 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 made a lot of sense of it There's, we've identified a lot of the problems with trolling and abuse etc and it's almost you know r- ripe for another young person to to launch some new social network that solves all of these problems and has some way that we haven't thought of to address all these trolling and abuse problems and can really take it into the next uh, the next phase of social connection
1: I wish I could say I agreed and I concur. And, and in many ways, I do agree, right? Mm-hmm. But I also feel like what's happened with social media is that it surfaces so much more of what's happening around us, for better or for worse, right? We have so much more vision of what's happening. And ultimately, what happens on social media is going to be reflective of what's happening in the world. So not to get too lovey-dovey about things, but until we are able to, to solve a lot of these cultural problems, th- these inter societal problems and even deeper than that, until we're, we're able to somehow and I don't know what the answer is or if there is an answer, you know that uh, this hatred is born from people who can use these technologies in ways that you and I don't right A lot of people will sit you know in their dark basement they'll their username will be you know, Kevin7815442, you have no idea who the person is, maybe his name or her name isn't even Kevin, and they can use these tools for uh, the purposes of trolling and, and hatred. And until that is rooted out, until we really address how we can raise our children to always love one another and not install that hatred in their hearts, you know, be it racially or uh, sexually or, you know, culturally uh, through other, you know, hating other religions. Um, These are problems that are even uh, the, those problems, Kevin make the things that we're talking about with AR and VR sound like Yahtzee. I don't think that there really is a way to solve mass shootings or you know, I, I hate to say something like that, but you know, the, these issues that continue to breed pessimism uh, through social media um, are ju- the, the barriers to entry for hatred are just too low, and there have, you know, you said that we're ripe for a new kid on the block. There have been new kids on the block, but they get eaten up because. Facebook's market cap is 100 billion dollars or whatever it is. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's way more than that. 600 500 whatever it is. You mm-hmm. you just can't compete no matter how good you are or 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 how good your idea is. You know, getting a thousand users isn't going to cut it no matter what you do. So I I think it, this 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 hits at a deeper societal problem that is is global that we just need to make sure that we continue to amplify the good that's happening. In our communities, through Twitter chats, through podcasts, through live streams, uh, through donating to nonprofits and everything, that that balance can shift, but it requires a lot more uh, action than what Chris and Kevin can do on a podcast.
0: I mean, what I'm hearing is that something which I think in the West we, we forget a lot of the time, that everything is connected right? Now, and and I don't use that literally in terms of the tech industry. Everything's connected via Wi-Fi. I mean, literally that, yes, yeah, social media is a reflection of the real society and real society is influenced by social media. And the rich people are connected with the poor people somehow through, you know, they will live in the same society and so on and so forth. You know, and I think sometimes in the in the Western countries, we, we get a little bit too, too siloed in our little echo chambers. And this is a whole other chat we could have another day is whether social media actually creates and augments these echo chambers, or it actually smashes them and reduces them. I, I don't know. I think it does both, actually. But it definitely influences those echo chambers.
1: I agree that I think it does both. And I also agree, uh, you know, I would... I would- continue on that point to say that the egalitarian nature of social media gives everybody a voice. It gives everyone an opportunity to be heard. And so often in society, all somebody is looking for is that opportunity to be heard.
0: So I was going to say, it's, it's such a powerful point that particularly in Australia, and I'm sure in, a, in America to a lesser degree, but, but uh, particularly in Australia, the people that have I wasn't born in Australia, right? I was born in South Africa. And people that were born in Australia in a very stable, liberal, democratic, free and open society have absolutely no concept what it's like not to be able to speak your mind. I grew up in a time in the 80s in South Africa when it was, you know, there was it was really hot, a lot of complexity. People were very scared of mentioning the word ANC in a social setting because they had no idea who was a member of the secret police or who was a spy and in which case it could cause real problems if they were seen as an ANC sympathizer and even harassment and even assassination. So I I remember what no freedom of speech was like i grew up reading newspapers that had a big sign at the front that said this newspaper has been audited and censored by the government and stories have been changed so i certainly don't take that aspect for granted you know it's very vivid in my mind and and i think it's very a big blessing that 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 australia and and america don't don't understand you know people would say to me when i first arrived in australia why didn't you march against apartheid i was like well it's not like marching in downtown sydney and the police clear the street for you and and let you go your way. You know, you identified yourself as a quote-unquote troublemaker, and sometimes the secret police would call you and say, you've got 24 hours to leave the country, otherwise it's going to be a big problem, and that was that. You know, so we must we must work really hard to to keep those freedom of speech and freedom of association, all those wonderful things of the liberal democratic state, you know, at the forefront, and never take them for granted because once they disappear, it's a real problem.
1: I agree one hundred percent, and I would add one thing. I think it's important that we, as creators or even as government officials or as community leaders, um, that we remember to get out there and actually, Meet the people to whom we need to connect with, you know, to whom we with whom we need to connect. Right? We see politicians, uh, and I don't want to name names here in America, but we see uh, our our president, you know, developing this this rabid fan base and everything through social media, of course, and through digital mediums and through a a, a clever mass media manipulative strategy. But quite honestly, also through traveling around and visiting towns and cities around America. And I wish that some of the the mass media around the world would take a page from that and start to remember uh, that, that they need to speak to these folks in these communities as well. You know, I'd love to see more mass media companies take up the idea of road trip marketing and travel around to the places where people are watching their channels on TV to show them that, yes, indeed, I am a real reporter. I am a real person. I'm not just uh, a Washington elite or a New York elite or a Sydney elite. I don't know if the same problems are are uh, take sure. place in, in Australia, but get out there and spend time in the places that where your messages are being broadcast. Show your face, show your emotion, have conversations, town halls, listen and genuinely change things that you do based on what you hear but I think it's so important as we've talked a lot today about robotics, about machinery, AR, VR, and and calling through Alexa to, to get a hair appointment and stuff, we have to remember that we're all still humans and there's nothing that can ever replace, at least in my generation, the ability to shake somebody's hand, to give them a hug, to look somebody in the actual eyeballs, not just the digital eyeballs like Brian Fanzel would say, but look someone actually in the eye and have an impact on them. Sometimes that one moment, can change the perception of who you are as an individual and or as a brand or as a company forever just by spending that one instant showing that you actually care about who they are.
0: So Chris tell us where you are in the US at the moment and tell us what's uh, what do the next few months hold for you?
1: So I'm uh, I'm I'm on Long Island. I'm in uh, Huntington where I was born and raised. I will be traveling out uh, to the Midwest of the States next week. I'll be speaking at Social Media Day Wichita, which is in Kansas, which for your Australian listeners is right smack dab in the middle of the States. And then I'll be heading a little bit further west out to Denver for Social Media Day. Denver, I've got a few gigs lined up here and there throughout the summer and the fall. But if you're looking for a speaker, uh, either domestically or internationally, I have a lot of dates available and uh, maybe working on a third book. Got a lot of different projects going on, but... Again, those two social media day events really will touch on exactly the point I just made of the importance of getting to meet people and have those conversations in real life.
0: And I get a real sense that um, at least for the time being, you found your purpose. You, you enjoy what you do, which is uh, uh, the holy grail for so many of us in the modern world where we've got the privilege of even pursuing that, that goal.
1: I think that for a lot of creators – for a lot of people in this industry, they may find satisfaction in vanity metrics, in likes or retweets or followers or whatever. Um, I find satisfaction in a lot of the things that I've just referenced in my last two answers, which are seeing that change happen in real life, seeing the effect that your work can have on people. I may not have the most followers, Kev. I may not have the most, uh, the biggest audience, the most YouTube subscribers but I really try and focus on having a deep positive impact on every single person that I come across on social media. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to uh, hopefully meet some of your listeners and uh, I'm also grateful again to, to be a guest on Social ROI. Um, I take these things very seriously because I know that there are real people listening on the other side and I appreciate every single one of them that's that's watched and or listened to this point.
0: Chris, we really appreciate your time. It's a uh... It's nice to have people in the industry that aren't focused just on metrics and aren't focused just on retweets and like, and actually that, that human layer is always so easy to forget. You know, I always say that every business is a people business, right? It's like, well, this you is, can't get away from it, right?
1: Social media is the ultimate people business. You know that, uh, again, some of these speakers, uh, a lot of the people that I, that I associate with have, have stellar reputations and the, the metrics come. The data comes, the numbers come, the followers come when you are genuinely good to people. That's how I choose to grow my brand, Kevin, is one conversation at a time, uh, one tweet at a time, one post at a time. And if you're always true to yourself and you always think about how you can be good to people, then I, I truly believe, even if the money hasn't really come to me at this point, I truly believe I'm on the right path and I can sleep well at night knowing that I'm trying to do to go about my business the right way.
0: Peace of mind when you hit the pillow is worth all the money in the world.
1: Absolutely. And I'm so glad we'll have the (laughs) peace of mind of finally having this conversation done. We've been trying to schedule this for a while, as you (laughs) mentioned. And uh, I'm so glad we got a chance to do this, Kevin. This was terrific.
0: that's really great, Chris. I really appreciate your time. And tell me which is which is the best platform for people to find you to contact you. Um, we'll obviously link it on the show notes. But in case someone's listening and they just want to follow you quickly on Twitter or YouTube or what's where are you sort of uh, present the most?
1: Got to be Twitter. Got to be Twitter. Just just like you, Kev. You know, I'm there all the time, listening, watching, replying. Uh, I'll even send a video reply, like our, our good friend Madeline Sklar. So, send me a tweet. Say what's up. If you're not on Twitter, there's 800 other channels you can find me, but Twitter is definitely my bread and butter.
0: Chris, really appreciate your time. I know we're going to stay in touch. I know our paths are going to cross in the real world somewhere, somehow, but thank you for so, mu- so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: And you know, if, if, if our real lives don't cross paths, maybe our robot lives will cross paths in about 200 years. So my, my <laughs> well, pleasure. Maybe in them. a couple
0: of years. Your- yeah, maybe in a couple of years, uh, uh, augmented reality projections, we can hang out and you can probably choose the back. We'll hang out in virtual Hawaii together and have a, a, a frozen margarita or something, and, right?
1: And our, our AR personalities will listen back to this podcast and have a good laugh over a good <laughs> virtual beer.
0: Uh, it's all getting a bit trippy. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks, Kev. Ow,
1: ow, ow. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. <coughs>
0: It's okay, Chris is someone that we had on the Social ROI chat, which we do Wednesday morning Sydney time, Tuesday afternoon the U.S. time, late Tuesday night U.K. time. By the way, this is all one chat. I'm just converting for you, so you can just Google Social ROI chat, which is a Twitter chat talking about the industry. And he was a guest on Social ROI, and I just he was just such a great guy and such a such a and I use this in such a complimentary way. He's just such a normal guy that um, I thought we'd we'd. Uh, bring him on the podcast no pretense he's lived a real life an interesting life and uh, i i just didn't i really enjoy chatting with him
2: yeah i I actually um was fortunate enough to meet him at social media marketing world and he's yeah a really great guy as well in person
0: and uh, you know it's interesting the social media world has has uh, brought people from all sorts of different backgrounds uh, which i quite like um, the tech world, especially on the engineering side of things, it tends to be you know, more scientists and engineers, and and um, but the social media world, wow, it's just people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We even had Chocolate Johnny on the social ROI yeah. chat, right? There's a chocolatier yeah. from Sydney, Sydney. that just had Snapchatting away everything.
2: People love chocolate, Johnny, though. I didn't get to see him. I don't know if he made it to the conference, but um, they all know him. <laughs> they all know him for his chocolate.
0: Look, it's, you know, social media's. It's smart, you know. It's smart, and people do love. Uh, what a great product, though, to be able to, to market. I meet so many people that sell mortgages or, you know, investment products or, you know, hammers and nails and you know but selling chocolate you know what a what a great what a great product and of course we spoke a little bit about AR and VR and you know so I think social social is going to change dramatically over the next few years um, and I mean it has changed it has changed already and it's it's consolidating in interesting ways moving very very fast I mean Instagram Instagram's changed and continues to change It keeps sort of feeling like Facebook more and more every day I don't know what your thoughts on that are you you're an Instagram you're a real Instagram person
2: yeah I still think that's a bit separate but you could see Facebook's influence at least but I think that was to be expected when they when they bought Instagram
0: it is, and it's all about the monetization, but it's you get nostalgic for the days, right? You sort of each, each – you open up Instagram these days and you're like, whoa, there is so much going on here. I, rem- I yearn for the days where I opened it up and there was nothing but a straight reverse chronological feed of photos.
2: You still do kind of get that. They've just added the stories to the top.
0: Ah oh, it's all oh, algorithmic as well. You see a photo, oh, yeah. you don't know when the person posted it. It's just like, oh, I hate that.
2: I still it's find like... that it yeah, it is an algorithm, but it's still fairly recent. Like I don't I don't see pictures from 2 weeks ago. I'll see pictures from today or yesterday. And I'm okay with yeah. that.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they you definitely more the market they need to please than me. You use it a lot more than I do. <laughs> so uh, they've 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 nailed that they've got the the Kate Propel seal of approval that's good um yeah, that's but interesting good. chris Chris said he hasn't really traveled outside of the u s much, which is a very foreign phenomenon to Australians, right? Hmm. But it's not that uncommon in America, and, and it's because in America, there's just so much to experience inside America. Australia, we've got a lot of land, but it's a lot of the same or very similar land, so I think it doesn't. Um, it's the, the excitement of different cultures is more interesting for for most Australians. So they just they just travel. They just Australians just really love to travel.
2: True, it's also a big thing in the states. I've started learning about doing all fifty states. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah, like it's sort of like a thing they like to tick off. You know that they've been around the whole country. Um, I'd love to do that. Yeah,
0: do, I find America absolutely fascinating. It's just. It is such a fascinating, interesting place. Uh, Canada, I've never been, comes across more as Australia to me.
2: Maybe. I don't, I, don't, I have a preference for Canada, but that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I I, I I, can see America, the, the chaos and the contradictions and a lot of the nonsense that goes on there, just, just pushing your patience, right?
2: Yeah, no, I, I do <laughs> really like California. It took uh-huh. me, a, it took. Like, I've done quite a few trips down there now because it's so close. And, yeah, it's definitely grown on me over time. But, yeah, my my first impressions of America, it wasn't bad. I have never thought it was bad. I've never been blown away by it either. I've always sort of been like, okay, they're a bit. I think, too, I think, you know what's interesting is that the border security really put a dampener on it for people. Interesting. Yeah, so when you get there, you know, there's this kind of stigma around, like, fear of the border. What are the border going to say? You know, are they are they going to be mean? Are they going to be aggressive? Like, you can't... And I've had plenty of friendly ones, too. But, like, I've had a lot of rude ones. I've had, like, ones that just don't, don't entertain any kind of chit-chat, which is fine. They're doing their job. But, yeah, like, sometimes it's the border. Like, it's that first... Uh, the first and last thing that you experience in America kind of leaves that taste in your mouth, and yeah, so many people I've spoken to have have had issues with the border security and just the attitude of the border officials
0: look that makes a lot of sense, right? yeah, it makes a lot of sense that your first impression it's you know if you if you step foot and you've been given grief just it's it's hard it takes a lot of effort to move on from that, so that I mean, my very, very first trip to the U.S. in the late '90s, um, I, I was—I was pulled into a room. They wanted to work out how I was going to fund the six weeks I was going to spend there. They were—they—they they were quite nice about it, but it was—I mean, it was a good hour affair, I would say. Mm. You know, and um, yeah, it's—it's—and I felt a little bit targeted because I was a, a backpacker. Um, they weren't accusatory or anything. I, I had the feeling that they had a certain amount of people that they had to you know, sanity check, and I just was one of them type thing. Yeah, but, um, but the, they I, I didn't didn't have uh, but yeah, I, I can understand how if people have it a little bit more rough, that's that that it can uh, be very disconcerting. Um, and you know also coming from Australia and Sydney, it's in relative to that, uh, America's chaotic. It's dangerous. It's there but there are parts that are dirty. It's you know, it's chaotic, it's contradictory. And Sydney's, you know, it's it's very pleasant, it's clean, it's safe. So it's it's I guess it's it's easy to feel like you're losing out if you would move to the States in certain ways as opposed to gaining, you know. But mm. but but through that chaos, there's a lot of magic, which is sort of what I'm interested in. Yeah. Um,
2: Once you get past that. Once you get out of the airport, <laughs> you have a good time. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's yeah. just even LAX, you know, it's just such a big, complicated airport. It's just... I don't LAX know, is
0: bigger than most Australian towns, right?
2: It is. And Like And is. I'm starting to get my head around it. But I remember the first time I got there, I was just, what is going on? Where do I need to be? And I was not the only <laughs> one. People were just frantic they didn't know where to go they didn't know the difference between the international and the domestic and because they call it international tom tom bradley or something they don't yeah, call tom it bradley.
0: that's the new that's international.
2: the new one yeah so yeah they <laughs> and then on the signs they abbreviate it to something like tbi so you if you don't know that it's called tom bradley you don't really know where you're going
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah look it's it's um It's not necessarily built for tourists, America. They don't, you know, they don't have a quite clean sheet of paper and say, right, how are we going to make life easier for tourists and put like some other tourist destinations where everything's engineered for the tourists, you know. But, um, yeah, interesting place and, you know the world economies run on all their products, and you know most of our users are American, and it's, so it's um, it's definitely an interesting place. But uh, to live there is always a whole different story. But anyway, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. You've been listening to Kevin Garber and Kate Frappel, co-hosts of the To Monkey podcast. Kate is the design lead, that manage Flutter and manage social. I'm the CEO of Manage Flutter and Manage Social. Um, if you listen to this podcast, I know that sometimes I go on road trips and I do a podcast binge. If you're do, if you doing something interesting while listening to this podcast, let us know and we'll give you a shout out as well. And we try to push these out every week. We've got some great interviews lined up over the next um, few weeks. So um, hope hope you'll subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can get an email notification, follow us on Twitter, do whatever you need to do. But uh, if you've made it this far on the podcast... Uh, We appreciate it. Thank you and thanks for listening.